Okay, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. I'll be reading verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and God the Father. Holy Father and Son and Spirit. May you grace us in these next 45, 50 minutes. May you grace us with the presence and the power of your spirit, causing not just our minds, but our, our hearts, the eyes of our hearts to see the, the beauty of your eternal glory manifested in our salvation. May we love what we see. So to that end, help me. Help me teach. Help me teach the core of what this text is saying this morning to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. In this passage, it teaches the divinity of Christ teaches his pre-existence, his equality with God as God. It teaches his incarnation, his true humanity, his death, his triumphant resurrection, and his permanent eternal reign as king. But before... We delve into a more complete exposition of verses 5 through 11 in the following weeks. This morning, I want to focus just on that very central, crucial teaching of Christianity, of New Testament Christianity, which is also one of the most difficult to wrap our human finite minds around, and that is the topic of Christ. Who is he? We call it Christology. The one who became a man incarnate, the God-man. Treat again, begin with verse 6. Who, referring to Jesus, who, though he was in the form, morphe, nature of God, did not count Equality with God, a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So what is that? How can that be? So this morning is about that very central New Testament doctrine without which and a denial of which you are not a Christian. And that is, Jesus is God. And He is truly man. And that is crucial for His propitiatory work on the cross for our salvation. Putting away the wrath of God for our sins. Jesus said He came not not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so the question this morning is, on that cross, who is it? Is that a man? Is that a human being? Or is that God? And the answer is, on that cross, that person is 100%. God. And He is 100% human. So first, the deity of Christ. When we say that, when I say that, we're referring to a real man in history, a man who was actually born and developed and grew up and said and did certain things. But we're not going to understand who that historical person, Jesus, is until we recognize He is also the Creator of the universe. God. Without beginning... He existed always as God. Jesus who walked the shores of Galilee. Though He was in the form, morphe nature, the the form or nature of God, He did not count His equality with God. A thing to be grasped, we'll come to that phrase in the next couple weeks. But notice the word though, though in the form of God, what that means is before he took on or to himself a human nature, becoming one with, with, with us, he existed. Paul's referring to the eternal Son Second person of the Holy Trinity who is without beginning. I want you to flip over in your Bibles to 1 John, his very good friend, the Apostle John, son of Zebedee, decades after his death, Jesus' and his resurrection, he writes this to the church. Begin with verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life 
was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. His point is the eternal Son with the Father. He was before his historical manifestation, appearance. Jesus, who ate food, who relieved himself, who got thirsty, who got tired and had to sleep, he was before creation. He had no beginning. He will have no ending. He, this person, is not part of creation. All creation, all life, all that was created, that by definition, that is not God, was made, created by Him, through Him. So let's flip over again to John, this time his gospel. The way he opens up his narrative of Jesus' life. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, not anything was made. That was made... And the Word became flesh, human, and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth from eternity, past with God, the sight of God and the face of God is God and became flesh, a human being. So just flip over a few pages to chapter 8 of the Gospel of John for a moment. So there's Jesus in his earthly ministry. In verse 57, John tells us, and So the Jews said to him, when well, he's in the temple preaching, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. It's crystal clear why they wanted him dead. It was because Jesus was claiming to have existed before Abraham walked the earth, which was 1,600 years before this. But even more shocking to them was that they knew Jesus was using the divine name for himself. By which God told Moses, Moses, say to them, I am has sent you. So I'm just going to read off a few texts for you briefly. In the New Testament, the word theos, 
get theology, doctrine of God. Theos is the word for God. It, it is most, most often used either for the, the whole Trinity or, or particularly to the Father, but not always. Here's the word theos. Here's the word God used directly pointing and referring to Jesus. In John 1.18, we heard this morning, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Or at the end of the Gospel of John, remember Thomas a week later touches Jesus' side, his hands, and he proclaims, John tells us, my Lord and my God. Now, John writes that decades later. I mean, if Thomas was wrong and blew it, John's obviously going to correct that. He would say this is what historically happened. His whole point is he was absolutely right. That man is my God. In Romans 9.5, Paul writes, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all. In Titus 2.13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1.8, where the writer is quoting Psalm 45, verse 6, referring to Jesus, he says, writes, but of the Son, he says in the psalm, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, accepting, believing, seeing, confessing Christ and His divinity, meaning kids, divine, divinity, deity, those words we mean, his godness, that he is God. It is crucial for orthodox, true, biblical Christianity. And yet in every century, the church has had to deal with people who profess to be Christians while denying or distorting the deity of Christ. The deity of Jesus and the nature of God himself particularly went through huge battles in four particular centuries. The 4th century, the 5th century, and the 19th century, and the 20th century. In the early 300s, all of a sudden... This, what we call in history now, the Arian controversy because of a, a Christian preacher, Arius, and a lot like him who held it. It's been becoming more and more clear as they're preaching in the churches that Jesus, our great King and Lord, is far superior to, to, to all cre creation far superior to every one of us as human beings. He is the first. And the highest creation. And the bells go off. No. Never, 
We don't, we've never believed this. And the controversy brewed. And because of it, that it is why we have what we call in church history or the, the first universal ecumenical council that had to meet. And here they did in Nicaea in the year 325. And out of that came the Nicaean Creed where they declared against Arianism, no, 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 concerning Christ, he is begotten, but not made, not created, doesn't have a beginning. And that, and that his, that is Christ's divine nature, is of the same essence, not derivative, not like the essence of God. It is homoousia. Of the same essence with the Father. And the point is that his very being, the being of Christ, is the being of God. He's not merely similar to deity. He is deity. So C.S. Lewis was absolutely correct when he wrote in Mere Christianity these words. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Christ is God. It's his divinity, the divinity of our Lord Jesus. Now, the humanity of Christ. Let's go back to Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8. But... We know he's equal with God, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The second person of the Holy Trinity, very God of very God, took to his person a human nature through the womb of a virgin. Christ, our Lord Jesus, he is not human from eternity past which is very true of his other nature, his divine nature. He is God from eternity past, but he became a man at a particular point in time. We call this the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. And so as much as it is False, and it is non-Christian to deny Jesus' deity. It is just as false and non-Christian.
to deny his true, real humanity. Matter of fact, People, by the end of the first century, it was creeping up within the church and with some teachers and other Christians believing it that, again, Jesus' good friend, the Apostle John, had to confront it. So I'm in 1 John chapter 4. He writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so, and we're going to see this in a minute. There's a context why he says this. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit teacher that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not from God. John's referring to this incipient Gnosticism that really became full-blown in the next century. But, but there's two little aspects or beliefs on this that were started to creep up. One was because of the Greek idea. I mean, flesh is by, it's, it's evil. Creation, physicality, is, it, it, it's, God would never become one of us. No way. And, and, and so, see, Jesus appeared to be human. Like Old Testament theophanies. You know, Abraham Sittner is talking to, looks like a man. Angels can appear. Even the pre-incarnate Christ so he wasn't really human, like you and me. He appeared to be. There was, there was another twist on it. No, 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 no. See, the, Jesus was very human, really human, flesh and blood. But do not confuse the human Jesus with the divine Christ. The divine Christ would come upon the human Jesus. And thus John writes what we call 1 John. Both of those views denied the central doctrine of true Christianity, the incarnation of Christ. And the whole letter of 1 John is concerned with making sure you understand we're talking about one person. Two distinct natures that that one person now has. I'm going to read it again back to the beginning of his letter. Chapter 1. Hear what he says. Remember, this is John, the son of Zebedee, the fisherman. Close friend of Jesus for years. Watched him die. Touched him, talked with him, and ate food with him after his resurrection. He writes, church, that which was from the beginning, which I and we, many of us, apostles and others, we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, the life 
It, it was made manifest. And we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The eternal God the Son. Not the Father, not the Holy Spirit, but the Son became visible, appeared, walked amongst us here on earth. How? John says, it's verse 1. We are testifying. We're sitting there bearing witness. We heard Jesus over and over and over speak. We saw Him in all kinds of situations during His ministry. We, and I, John, touched Him. The eternal became a human being. Now, what's really easy to do for genuine Christians that we love Jesus, you shout, you think, yeah, that was a really good sermon. You start to think about, what is that? Oh, yeah, God became a man. And, and, is a, and look, Naturally, heresies come up in our minds till we get this straight. So when we say that Christ became man, it does not mean that the divine second person of the Trinity changed from deity into humanity. No. He did not suddenly stop being God and become man. But the divine person, the Son, took to himself a new nature that he did not have. A human nature. The Word became flesh and, and lived among us. He, he is fully and He is completely human in every way that we are human. See, our sinfulness and our sin nature that we inherited from Adam is not... Is, it, you, if you remove that, it doesn't make you non-human. And so, that's why the Scripture does make it constantly clear. Oh, don't get me wrong, except for sin. He has no sin Nature, the eternal God who became one of us, but He is very much one of us. With a real mortal body He had with chemical reactions and a brain and hormones. He was at one time a dependent breastfeeding infant. And He had... this. See, when we talk about God becoming man, it doesn't mean that... God created this physical box called a body and we shove God into it. And there, there's the divine inside the body. Then he wouldn't be really human. To be a human is to have a human soul. Human emotions, intellect and mind. With the ability as it operates through the, the brain and all of that to actually learn something you didn't know the previous day. That's an impossibility. 
for the divine nature. God is omniscient. He cannot learn something. But when that divine person takes to himself a human soul, human nature, human body, human brain, he can grow. He can develop. He can learn. Now, since in our journey through the book of Philippians, we've, we've come to this great passage, and I just, I don't know how many weeks we're going to be here. It's just, you don't get to go here like if you're in a consecutive expository preacher a whole lot, but we're going to be here. But what, what I want to do then is to look at verse 7 and at least let you know and bring up historically a controversy over this verse. Uh, a little over 100 years ago, in the 19th century, the late 1800s, it's called the kenosis theory. And the reason it's called the kenosis theory because the Greek word that translates he emptied, and you get the pronoun himself. He emptied. That, that's the Greek word. Kenosis. So the question in, the, in this theory was this. When Paul says that Jesus emptied himself. Of what? Of what did he empty himself in his human state? And those who... We're holding to and proclaiming the kenosis theory. It became very popular for a time. They said that the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, totally laid aside his divine attributes. Emptied himself. His incommunicable attributes. He laid aside his omniscience. His eternality, his omnipotence, in order to become a human being. So in becoming a human being, in the very real sense, he stopped being God. So the theory goes, Jesus changed, or he transformed. From deity into humanity because he set aside his omniscience and omnipotence and self-existence and omnipresence and his immutability. The kenosis theory. It is heretical. It's unbiblical. And it's simply wrong. If God set aside any, any of his attributes. That would mean the immutable one went through a mutation. It would mean the changeable, that's what immutability, the, 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 the unchangeable went through a change. Which would mean the infinite suddenly Stop being infinite. It would be the end of the universe. The biblical view is that God cannot stop being God and still be God. 
That's why Orthodox biblical Christianity has always affirmed when we're referring to Christ, we are talking not about two persons. We're talking about one person with two natures. Fully human, fully divine. So you come up into the 400s in the 5th century and people trying to do their best saying, hmm, oh, I see, okay, God, who by definition isn't created and humanity is created by, by God, but how, how did well, Jesus became human? So, oh, it's kind of like, oh, I get it. Somehow the Godness of the nature mixed with the human nature and you have this superhuman being and it's sort of like a third nature and the church has it. Let's get together and hash this one out because that's not what we've been teaching. It's not what we see. And so they do. And it was at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And that council declared in its document we are referring to one person, two natures, truly man and truly God. The two natures are united in the one person, but they are in such a way that one of the natures, the divine nature, does not in any way change or infiltrate the human nature, nor the other way around, or let you put the divine nature and the human nature into a bowl and you make a nice little different kind of soup and you have some kind of a hybrid. No. But we must always distinguish between the two natures of Jesus, but do so without ever separating them from the one person. So, did Jesus get hungry? Yes. Did he feel all kinds of needs like you? And I do. Yes, he experienced all that which is an impossibility for the nature of God to experience. When he got hungry, we're talking about only one person. In his human nature, not his divine nature. But whatever we attribute from one nature or the other, the divine or the human, we're all applied to the one person at the cross. The God-man died, suffered. But the divine nature did not die. It can't. It's an impossibility. But the divine one who took to himself and became then and forevermore human died on the cross. But those two natures have always and will always remain united in the one person, the second person of the Trinity. He was raised from the dead and he ascended almost 
still short of 2,000 years. Jesus ascended. And so in one sense, I have to tell you, Jesus is not here in his human nature. But that one and same person is very much here right now in his divine nature, in his omnipresence. So back to that word kenosis. Paul says, Jesus emptied himself. But look at the text. It doesn't say that he emptied himself of some powers or divine attributes, but it does say what Jesus did in emptying himself. He did not do it by giving up any of his eternal incommunicable attributes. Those are attributes that only apply to God, like omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience. Didn't say that, but it does say, rather, he emptied himself, and it tells you how. By taking to himself a new nature. By becoming a slave, a human, lowly human on this earth. Let's read it slowly. Verse 7. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. By being born in the likeness of humanity, man. And by being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the context itself interprets this emptying as equivalent to his taking to himself the creature, becoming one of them, and a lowly one. And humbling himself in obedience to suffer and to die. That's why the paraphrase, the NIV, offers this very loose interpretation of emptied himself. They, they translate it this way. And made himself nothing. Okay, It's nothing like a wooden translation of what he's saying. But they understand that's what he did. He stooped. God became man for us and our salvation. Oh, the beauty of the cross. Though the whole world be fallen apart, which people have felt throughout the centuries and we feel in it now. This is the reason. And if we have been so blessed to be chosen, which you know by this, do you believe in him? Is he yours? Oh, 
so is, is we are continually preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper. I want us to turn, lastly, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, the writer tells us, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so let's just meditate on what we just saw there, slowly. This great gospel-centered sequence of the most wonderful and important realities in all existence. Back to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Since therefore those children are human beings. That term children goes back to the previous verse, which there specifically refers to the offspring of Christ. He's saying God sends Christ to save his sheep. To save the children. Read on. Therefore, that's the logic of it, since this is true, since the elect, the sheep, the children, share in flesh and blood, we're really humans, therefore he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh. Christ existed before his incarnation. He took to himself flesh and blood. He became fully man and remained fully God. But I can't grasp it. Welcome to the club. If you ever say that you totally grasp this, then something's wrong. It's a mystery. But it is at the heart of Christianity. Read on. Why? Why did he do this? He says, this is why. So that through death, reason he became man was in order to die. As God, he could not die for sinners. But as man, he could so that he could make propitiation for our guilt and our sin before God, that he could take the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself, who God in his humanity, the last Adam, oh yeah, that first one was our representative and plunged us into God's wrath because of sin. Well, I don't like that. Well, then you don't like the gospel. 
Because the great news is, is that God became man as our representative so that His perfect sinless life, like the first Adam, plunged the entire nature of humanity into sin. God became part of that nature without sin and says, my son's perfect obedience. I know you didn't do that one either, but if you will have him, you'll have his perfect righteousness to your account forever. Because I took your guilt And I attributed it to my son. And thus I executed him. Put away your sin. Forever. Read on. So that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. In dying, he stripped the power of the devil. How? By suffering the penalty for our sin. And Satan's ultimate weapon against us is our sin, our guilt. But what happened on the cross nullifies the condemnation that Satan may try to use because There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul says, who? In that same chapter, there's no condemnation. Who in the world can bring any charge against God's elect? But but I'm guilty, I'm a sinner. The gospel came in these first eight chapters of Romans. So so who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, declares you righteous and forgiven. So who is there to condemn? Not Satan. Or as Paul writes in Colossians 2, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal Demands. This he set aside. Nailing it. To. The cross. And finally verse 15. And. Deliver all those who through fear of death. Were subject. To lifelong slavery. Our loving Father means for our eternal happiness in the future that is promised to us in the gospel. He means for that to take away the slavery of the fear of death now. During this life. Our last enemy, death, has been defeated because Christ became man 
so that as man he would live and he would suffer and he would die he would rise triumphant and thus defeating death for us and for our salvation and all of it is because he is one person with two distinct natures now forever oh the book of hebrews come on up our great high priest who forever makes intercession for the saints our king son of david the son of god holy father we thank you as paul tells us you did not refuse to send your own son. You did not spare your own son. But you sent him and you killed him. You slaughtered him on a cross because it was your will because it was his will. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your ever present spirit. Thank you for going to the cross. Oh, we thank you for the great encouragement that because you, the creator of the universe, have become one of us. We know you relate in your own experience to all things human except for sin. Be glorified in these closing moments, in our hearts, in our repentance, in our joy, in our contemplation, in our singing, in our eating and drinking of your flesh and your blood. To the glory of your holy name.